Doherty, the 6'7 sophomore from East Meadow, New York. Leadership is learned. A starter on Coach Dean Smith's legendary 1982 Tar Heels National Championship team with Michael Jordan. Jordan comes down with a rebound. Clears it away to Doherty. Doherty going in against Floyd. For the layup, it's good. Leadership is earned. Head coach at the University of North Carolina and the University of Notre Dame. You notice Matt Doherty, he is up working every second of this ballgame. Leadership is taught. Public speaker, author, and executive coach. And leadership does not require a title. This is the Rebound Podcast with Coach Matt Doherty. Welcome to the Rebound Podcast. I'm Matt Doherty, and I'll be your host. On this podcast, we discuss leadership and overcoming adversity in an open and raw kind of way. I became passionate about leadership in 2003 after I lost my job as the head coach at my alma mater, the University of North Carolina. I went on a leadership journey. Leadership is a skill that needs to be practiced on a continuous basis. Chad Hedrick was born in 1977 in Spring, Texas. He was a U.S. Olympic speed skater, five-time medalist. 2006 Winter Olympics, he won the gold. Again, he was in the Olympics in 2010. Chad won 93 national championships and 50 world championships. He revolutionized speed skating with a unique technique called the double push. Chad, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here today. Tell us about this double push thing. <laughs> you know, um, in every sport, there's always one guy that does things a little different than everybody else, right? And in my eyes, um, with hard work, any technique to a degree can be successful. You look at Jim Furyk and how he swings a golf club and you know, there's, there's people that do things their own way and it just works. Um, the double push was, um, my God given talent. It was my God given ability, the way that I naturally skated from birth. I think, um, a lot of times when people look at my success on skates, it's very easy to say that it's because of that technique that was kind of envied in our, our little world, if you will. Mm -hmm. But it often overlooks the hard work that I put into what I do. And, you know, as great as it is to be an innovator, right. At this point, it's, uh, it's frustrating sometimes because I know, and you know what it takes to get to the top of any podium, any, uh, championship. Um, it, it takes a lot of hard work. And although that was a big part of my success, I think if I would have lost faith and, and, and lost my determination, lost my drive, um, my work ethic, all of those things, it wouldn't have mattered how I skated and um, I, w- I wouldn't have succeeded. So as much as I like to think, hey, man, that's a that's a cool way to skate. I know there's a lot more behind it right. than just a technical aspect of a sport. Well, let's just a quick description for those of us that don't know, um, you know, the skating world. What what? And, yeah, and it's, it's, it's essential. It's essentially and it's the most confusing thing to somebody who's not in our world, but somehow um, I learned to transfer my weight where I was pushing more uh, with both feet at one time, if you will. So that's where it got the term double push. 
I compare it to doing something like slalom skiing where you're going around, you're going around the poles. And when you're cutting, both feet are actually putting pressure into the, into the ice to create pressure to turn. Well, essentially I was doing that on concrete and being able to produce twice as much uh, energy uh, leverage into the ground. So accelerating, um, from a slow pace to, to top speed was much quicker. And then just reaching a, a speed that was, that was higher than what everybody else, obviously we're talking about speed skating, but a, a speed that was higher because everybody had a more traditional push with one foot at a time technique. And it's the more I talk, the more confused you're going to get. <laughs> yeah. 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 Let, let's move on to the weather. Um, no, it, it, it's such the thing that, caught me as you were talking and and I know because I did some research but the audience we talked about speed skating and everyone's assuming and rightfully so when you're talking about olympic gold medal you were talking about ice but you said concrete and I know you know how you get started but I want you to tell the audience how did you get started in speed skating yeah so my dad owned a roller rink here in north houston I learned how to walk on a pair of skates when I was 17 months old on conventional roller skates. Um, my friends and I, we, we love the fast skate. Um, everybody went to public skating session. It was kind of the cool place to be and hang out here, here in our town. I think a lot of towns were that way, it seems. Um, so we love to skate fast and out of nowhere, we just decided we were going to start a speed skating team. And ironically, my dad was our coach and, um, we, we got going and before you knew it, we had 25 or 30 people on this team. We started traveling across Houston and then across Texas. And then the next thing you know, we were traveling across the nation by the time I was eight years old. Wow. Won my first national championship. And I got to tell you, Matt, um, a lot of people don't know this. And often, you know, we, I talk to my kids, my kid's 13 years old. Uh, she doesn't want to, she doesn't know what she's going to do with her life at this point with college and this and that. But at eight years old, I knew I wanted to be the fastest speed skater in the world. And was that, and, was that on ice at eight years old or you wanted to be the fastest on cement? So, yeah. So I, I so we went from conventional roller skates and then in 1994 inline skates came out. Everybody had rollerblades in their garage. Everybody was playing street hockey, you know, the deal. Yep. And uh, we figured out real quick that inline skates um, were way faster than conventional roller skates. Mm-hmm. So we switched to those in 94, uh, maybe 93. Um, and then in, uh, right before 1995, at 17 years old, uh, I traveled overseas for the first time and became the fastest speed skater on inline skates in the world at just 17 years old, still in high school. And um, I did that for 10 years with numerous sponsors, making a great living for myself, uh, traveled to 42 countries with just a backpack and a pair of skates. Uh, my first sponsor, believe it or not, was a little startup company called Oakley Sunglasses. <laughs> and I was getting paid at uh, 15 years old, uh, $800 a month. And I thought I was living it up. <laughs> now, again, we're talking inline skates and we're talking about roller skates, but the right. ones that are they're not two and two, it's. That's right. 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 In, right. In the line. So I did this for 10 years. I was reigning 
world champion for nine straight years. We had, you know, six or eight races every year. That's how it equates to how many world championships you, you uh, stated earlier. Uh, but at the end of the day, just as you're thinking about it right now, you had no idea of what inline speed skating was. So this was the challenge for me. And this is where identity starts to sit in because I knew how much work I put into what I did, but nobody knew what it was. I was the very best at something and nobody even understood it. So what does an athlete want, Matt? We yeah. want notoriety. We want fame. We want money. We want all of these things that we see from around, you know, what we see on TV, right? Mm -hmm. And so naturally as a mid 20 year, 20 year old guy, I kept telling people what I did and nobody knew what I did. And I said, you know what? I'm going to make a change. I'm going to try to qualify for the Olympics and a different type of skating. So I packed everything up in here in Houston and I moved to Salt Lake City, which was the site of the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City. And uh, I started fresh and uh, it wasn't easy. I got to tell you. Well let, well, let me back up. At, at you're about mid twenties, you said. So you know, let's say you're 25. Yeah. Moved to Salt Lake City. How much experience had you had in that at that point on the ice? Well, uh, it's funny as God would have it. Um, I I met uh, one of my best friends. Uh, he was from Vancouver Island. He moved to uh, to Houston when he was about eight years old, and he got me playing ice hockey. So. I played several years of ice hockey from eight until probably mm, 15 or so. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was something that really uh, assisted me in this transition because the feel, the natural feel of the ice versus, you know, being on top of the surface or on the concrete um, with inline skating, um, that initial feel I had at the beginning. So Although it was a very, very tough transition, I qualified for the national team in, uh, in just six months mm. and I actually became world champion in 17 months after the first day I stepped on the ice. That must have pissed off a lot of people. Like, you, you know, you come in the new kid and you go from the new guy to 17 months later <laughs> uh, being a great skater. Not everybody probably embraced that because you probably bumped some people down. Yeah. You know, some of the guys that were training for years and years growing up on the ice and that was their deal. That was their dream. And all of a sudden a new guy comes in with a, a different background and everything kind of clicks and it, I'm sure it was frustrating. Uh, but I'll tell you, it came with frustrations on my part too. Uh, I got out there used to being the fastest guy on every race that I had for 10 straight years and uh, get on the ice. And uh, I was a normal Joe Schmo out there trying to figure it out. Financing, you know, your, your mid twenties, you change, you know, sports. How do you fund that? The biggest challenge of it all was leaving the compensation that I was making as an inline skater. I was making a quarter million dollars a year from the time I was 20 to 25 years old, uh, just traveling around skating. I was loving it. It was a wonderful life, but nobody knew who the heck I was or what I did. And it drove me absolutely insane. <laughs> and uh, so I had to start something new, but I, I had saved up money and I 
I was positioned to do it. But then shortly after I started, as you would imagine, um, although speed skating is not a huge sport here in America, it's big in other, other uh, countries across, across the world. And it was just a matter of time before I had three or four new sponsors and make it a great living for myself again. So it was, uh, it was, you know, as challenging as it was at the beginning, uh, it was well worth it. And I was on a trajectory to be able, being able to accomplish something where, um, if I told them, they remembered, um, seeing me on a podium, uh, representing my country. And that was, that was the, the goal. That was the, the biggest honor for me. It was representing my country and, Honestly, at that young age, for people to know what I was doing. How old were you when you won gold? 2006, I was 29. I didn't actually start ice speed skating until I was 20, 27 years old. So I was a, a late bloomer. And uh, man, I always go back and think, man, what would have happened if I would have started earlier? And Yes, that's exactly the next question. But, you know, you can't live like that. I had great experiences who, who knows if I would have been physically as strong at that point, uh, maybe just that 10 years as a reigning world champion on inline speed skates built me up and, and put me in the right position or, or maybe I could have won a few more. I don't know. So you go uh, another four years to the 2010 Olympics, right? And, and tell me, at what point did you decide to stop skating? Well, you know, Matt, you're an athlete. You, you realize at one point or another, you start to figure out that everybody recovers a little better than you. You start to feel like the old man out there. And then I guess the biggest thing that happened to me is there was one guy that I was racing against and I stepped to the starting line and I, I knew I was racing for second place. Uh, and who's that, that guy? Uh, Sven Kramer. He's a, a guy from the Netherlands. He's, he's a hero in the Netherlands. I think he's got eight or 10 medals in the Olympics. He's, he, he didn't lose a race for eight years. He was that dominant. He was six foot three. He was 200 pounds. I was, five foot 11, 170, you know, he was just, although he was much younger than me, his, his physical gifts were much greater than mine. And, uh, he was almost like Thor, right? <laughs> and when you, when you saw him, um, you know, it was the first time in my life that I thought I didn't have a chance to win. And that's when I just realized this, this is, this can't go on, go on any longer. So take us to the day when you uh, decided that I'm, I'm done. It was kind of interesting. My last event uh, was in Vancouver in 2010. And um, although I didn't win a gold medal in 2010 in Vancouver, I left there and had uh, got a silver and a bronze medal uh, with the silver being my last event. And it was interesting because of all the things I did as an individual athlete, my last event was a team event mm -hmm. with three kids uh, that were just uh, in there. Uh, one was 19 and uh, the other, the other two were early twenties, 20, 21, something like that. Some of them were skating their first Olympic event and it was kind of a, a farewell 
and also a, a lesson about how much I'd learned from sports because these three guys looked at me. They had seen my success in the past and they were looking at me as the leader. And um, I was able to utilize all the skills that I had learned as an athlete to be able to take their performance to the next level and give them the confidence that was needed. And although we didn't win a gold medal, we came very, very close to, to winning gold. And we got, uh, we got a silver medal there in Vancouver. And that was, that was my last event. And although it wasn't, wasn't an individual event, it was very, very uh, gratifying that uh, I was able to lead these guys to their first, first Olympic medal in their first race, you know? You walk off the podium. Do you know this is it? I'm done? Yeah, I think, you know, leading up to 2010, I really didn't know after 2006 if I was going to continue because it's four years. That's a, that's a lot. You know, we have this one moment to shine mm-hmm. and four years of training as an older man, when you got youngsters that are coming up and they're strong, these kids are athletes, you know, and it's like, you need longer rest in between each race. You need to take better care of your body. And um, so I just realized, Hey, I don't know if I want to train four more years to accomplish the same feat that I already accomplished. I mean, what, what could I get another gold, you know? And I started thinking that way and I think it affected me mentally. And then on top of that, I had a hip surgery in, uh, in 2008 that all the, all this stuff just kind of accumulated. And I started right before 2010, I started to see a lot of improvement in my skating and took, got a new coach. And man, I really thought things were, were on the right trajectory. And, uh, you know, I went out there and I came up a little short. It really did a number on me mentally. And I, although I got a silver and a bronze, I really don't think my heart was in it entering 2010. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was thankful to be able to lead those kids and be able to, uh, to have a great experience and, you know, win some medals. But at the end of the day, I felt like my time had passed, you know, at 32 years old, um, racing guys that are 20, 22, 24, it was tough, you know, and, you know, with the surgery and everything, I just, it wasn't the same mentally. And that, that kind of upset me because I've always leaned on my mental strength as a racer, as a, somebody who can intimidate people and who can really have the edge before their gun goes off, you know? So you stop skating, top of your profession. That's, that's where the story begins. Right? That's, this that. is where when you and I met at Dan Jansen's, uh, golf event in, in Mooresville. Uh, when we started talking, I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. This is called the rebound podcast for a reason. You had to rebound, even though you were successful, you had to now pivot and, and rebound into something else. And people don't realize, you know, the cliff athletes fall off of. Um, I was a national championship basketball player with Michael Jordan. Uh, my goal uh, was to play in the NBA. Um, I got drafted late in uh, the sixth round. They don't even have six rounds anymore in 1984. I get cut by the Cleveland Cavaliers. My career is over. And ever since I was 12, 
I dreamed of playing in the NBA and people that I competed against my teammates, Michael Jordan, Sam Perkins, Kenny Smith, James Worthy are stars in the NBA and I can't even get a sniff. It's a cliff that we fall off of and the emotional, the depression, I started drinking. Um, I, w- I was drinking in college, but I really started drinking and, and it ended up getting the best of me. And I stopped when I was about 26, but I remember <laughs> jogging on uh, Broadway in, in New York. I was working on wall street. I'm jogging and thinking, you know what, maybe I'll go back and try to play in Europe because I hated my job. I'm 22, 23. So I had back surgery, but like I'm getting back in shape and a bus pulls up on Broadway and on the side of the bus is Michael Jordan spread Eagle over okay. the in Chicago. And a year earlier, he and I were teammates. He and I would split a pizza. He and I were riding in the same buses. He and I were changing shoes in the same locker room. He and I were playing in the same game together. And now there's this tremendous separation that was really, really hard to deal with. And to be, and you talk about identity and, and, and I like to be great at something I think you have to be somewhat obsessed, especially if you're not the most gifted person, but like even Michael Jordan, like to be his level, you have to be somewhat obsessed. Kobe Bryant, somewhat obsessed. And then when it's over, it's done. What fills that void? And very few people are like Michael Jordan that can transition and ride that and build the sneaker brand and, you know, still be, Michael Jordan, you talked about fame, notoriety. You're a starter on a national championship team. You don't wait on the line in Chapel Hill. <laughs> you go right to the front of the line. Yeah. The bars, the clubs, the, the restaurants. You don't wait. You're on the Coach Smith. You, my coach, Coach Smith, used to call it the super highway. Well, all of a sudden, I'm in New York City. I had to wait. I had to wait. I had to carry my own bags. I had to book my own travel. I had to. You didn't get three massages a week. You didn't, you weren't, didn't have anybody stretching you every day. Like all these things, you just, you, you, you figure out how good you had it, right? How did you go from gold medalist, the top of your profession to an average Joe? When did that hit you? So I'll, I'll tell you, this is, this is a statement that very few people will understand, but the gold medal that I won wasn't the best thing that ever happened to me because of the fame, the fortune, the success. The gold medal was the beginning of my walk with Christ, number one. Amen. Because I found the end of myself. My life was defined only by how fast I could go on a pair of skates. Mm-hmm. Nothing more. I was a womanizer. I was a borderline alcoholic. I used and manipulated everybody around me just to win a race. Whatever advantage that I could get, I took it. And although it was an amazing, amazing accomplishment, I never would have found who I really am as a person because I never would have experienced those struggles if things would have just continued, if I would have won gold medal after gold medal. And then, you know, the crazy thing is in my sport, 
we don't have college. You go to, you go to UNC, you can play college. You know, you just said you're working on wall street. People are ready to hire you. You know, you're a relatively famous guy. You've got a good degree from a good college. Well, guess what? My whole life I put into winning a gold medal. I put into becoming the world champion in skating, which not a lot of people even know, but that was my gift. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I entered the world and it went from people wanting to put a microphone in my face and write things that I say in the newspaper to former Olympic gold medalist. Nobody gives a crap. Former. Don't you hate that? Former. former. And everybody says there's no former Olympic gold medalist, but you sure feel like a former. Former. Former teammate of Michael Jordan, former national champion, former. And you, you, you live off that a little bit, but then it's like, ugh. So, 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 so what's the deal when – when you're Michael Jordan or you're even just a, the money these guys are making in sports right now, you get it. But like somebody that doesn't even go to college, they get out of the NBA, major league baseball, football, whatever, play five years, man, they, unless they were really, really lacking intelligence with their decisions, they don't have to think about what's next. Mm-hmm. But I did. I didn't have a college degree. I came home. I looked for a job. Entitled Chad Hedrick, Mr. Gold Medalist, thought everybody and their mom would want them want them to come work for him because I knew a lot of people and people wanted to be around me. That was my that was my thought. What was the first job you went for? Oh man. So my first job, I came home, I made sixty-five thousand dollars a year. And the kicker is I was selling electricity to commercial businesses, okay? Like grocery stores, whatever. I mean, you want to talk about an eye-opener, okay? The kicker was everybody that I was working for was my age. Mm, I remember you telling me you went to interview with somebody that was younger than you. Yeah, this, this is why. Because they had been putting time in since graduating college at 22, for 10 years up until 32, they had been climbing the ladder. Whatever business it is, you know, you put your tenure in and you're you're working hard and you're doing your thing, man. You're you're moving up. So this new guy comes in, and it's kind of funny. I, I signed on with the company as a salesman, and I was also the spokesman. So I made more money by doing three commercials for them that year than I did working for them the whole year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just, I couldn't get over it and it was pride, Yeah. but that pride taught me that, man, I'm still a winner. I'm still a winner. I have what it takes. I can outwork everybody and I'm going to prove that. I don't know if this is the job that I'm going to have, but sooner or later, it's just a matter of time before I get back on my feet. You talked about, Beginning to walk with Christ, talked about alcohol, women. When did you start the uh, journey with Christ? Uh, I officially got baptized before the 2010 Olympics. But the moment that I knew was with that gold medal around my neck, okay? In 2006, 
I had the gold medal around my neck. We had 35 people from Houston that were in this little town square as they had their ceremony uh, for uh, giving out the medals. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at all these 35 people. This should be the absolute time of my life. This is what I've watched Carl Lewis and I've watched all these athletes just crying and jumping and all this stuff on the podium. And that's what I wanted. But when I got up there, Chad Hedrick, 5,000 meter Olympic gold medalist, Team USA. And guess what? They put it around my neck and I can go back and I can watch the footage and I can realize exactly what moment I figured out that, man, everything that I was chasing doesn't mean squat. That's right. That it's just another race. It's just a piece of metal. It's just a goal. And it's not going to change me forever. And for three years, from 2006 to 2009, I couldn't put my finger on exactly what that was. But I reflected long and hard, had a lot of great mentors, a lot of great people in my life. And it quickly was apparent to me that life is not about Chad Hedrick. <laughs> life, it doesn't matter. Oh, man, that's I hard. am a pipsqueak. I am a sinful pipsqueak, broken man. Amen. And the, the sooner people can realize that, the sooner, I mean, how, how hard is it to love other people when you think you're the, you're the talk of the town? Do you think everybody loves you and, and idolizes you? There's no reason for, for you to, you're just receiving, man. There's no giving, right? That's right. That's right. You talk in an interview that I watched about um, basically serving others, satisfying your soul was a term you used. And I felt searching for a lot of things since I got fired as a coach because my identity was wrapped up as in basketball. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I didn't have it. I liked being called coach. I liked being walking into a gym with a, a brand of SMU or UNC or Notre Dame or FAU on my Part of the squad. And people look at you with respect and all of a sudden I wasn't. And it felt empty. I was depressed, dealt with depression. I mean, I dealt with depression for about 20 years, really, and tried to mask it. Fortunately, I hadn't been, I gave up drinking when I was uh, in 88 or something like that. And um, I think what you talked about is helping others, serving others, taking the focus off of you. And I got back into coaching, but as an executive coach and keynote speaker. And it's like the most fulfilling work I've ever done, but it's taken me a long time to about 60 uh, years old to figure it out. Um, But we're all under construction as there's a Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife on her tombstone. It said construction complete. Thank you for your patience. (laughs) And she used that because on the roads in North Carolina, she'd see signs and say under construction, thank you for your patience. And uh, so she put construction complete. Thank you for your patience because we're all under construction Yeah, every freaking day. And so how do you find meaning in your work as a 
realtor in the real estate space, like very transactional. And it's like almost sudden, like I want to accumulate gold medals again. I want to win. I got to win because I got to beat the other people. It's about money. How do you serve others through your real estate business and maybe back up? Why real estate? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so ironically, I got into real estate in 2016. And what I realized really quickly in this very competitive, which I like, money-driven, success, um, the grind. I, li- I like the grind. I don't know. I'm weird. I like the grind. I want to I wanna outwork people, right? Right. But what I realized is that God put me in a profession where I had to shift my mentality and become servant-minded. And it has been the best thing for me because as you would imagine, and a lot of other people out there listening may not understand this, but when you're in a sport, you're with your team, your, your goal is to do such and such. You've got this horse blinder mentality, okay? What other people say doesn't matter. You're not really listening. You're not really paying attention. You're just, your eyes are on the prize. And with that comes, for me at least, a lack of relationships that are meaningful. And mm-hmm. so all the way from high school, I can remember, I mean, honestly, Matt, I mean, I, I, I was traveling to Europe and 16 years old, 17 years old, 18 years old in high school. My friends had no idea what I was doing and they pretty much just all gave up on me because I wasn't the guy hanging out and going to the school parties and being right. a normal, a normal teenager. I was different. Not that I was weird or anything, but I had a lot of, a lot of tough times in high school having real friends and that continued for a long time just because of that, that determination to be the absolute best and nothing would, nothing would interrupt it. So how has that changed? Well, my business is absolutely nothing if I don't serve people, if I don't create relationships. And that's why I'm saying it's so therapeutic because I have to sit in the kitchen at the kitchen table talking about memories that these families have had with their home. I have to create real authentic relationships or I'm not working with them. That's how this business is won or lost. So how weird is it that a guy that had no friends basically because of his commitment to his sport now relies on this. And because of my identity battle, if you will, I was open. My eyes were open to this, to be able to grow and understand how to connect with these people. It's, it's just God, God wrote a beautiful, beautiful book. And man, I'm just trying to live in it. It's pretty cool that you recognize that. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? It's funny you say that because this morning I was t- texting a guy, I said, hello. And he's like, man, just working on my walk. I go, man, it's just so funny when your eyes are open, man, and you can see that it's not you doing things, but man, there's somebody that loves you and has mercy for you and man, wants you to thrive in, in this world, you know? Working on your walk. Who, who's credited with that quote? <laughs> I've got a friend who's a, who's a banker here in town. He's got a couple kids and, you know, it was, it, it was needed at the time. I'm glad I reached out because, you know, just, just thinking about that and just, 
sometimes people can just put a nugget in your ear and you just yeah. think about it the whole day. I love nuggets. I, I, I collect nuggets. That's why I want to, I'm just going to call it Chad's friend working on you. <laughs> when you, you mentioned mentors, you know, we can get out of whack. Like you've had, seems that like you've had success in the real estate business. How do you make sure you stay grounded and not like think, wow, I'm pretty good at this, you know, um, and puff your chest out a little bit. Uh, how do you stay grounded, humbled and connected? So I, I connect my, my sports success with always putting the X on my back. Okay. If Chad were to win, it's normal. If Chad were to lose, what the heck is wrong with Chad? Right. So that's how I always view things. I know it's really messed up, but I put that kind of pressure on myself at practice, at races, at the Olympics, whatever it is, at training, every, every time. I'm sure when you play with Jordan, I mean, man, every practice, he wasn't, he wasn't going to let anybody show, show, them, show him that he was better than them, right? I mean, he was, he was fierce at every second of every practice. You're darn right. And so I remember – how bad the loss stung and in real estate. I remember when my business wasn't good and we all know, man, the real estate business stocks, whatever there's businesses out there that can go. Woo and you got to remember what it was like when it sucked. So you touched on some things, transferable skills. What skills are you able to transfer from the ice to leading your company, which is, is it soul to gold? Gold to soul. Gold to soul. Yeah. What skills transfer? Man, I didn't know. I honestly didn't know I had these skills, but man, as a leader, having a heart for people to succeed around me, giving them the tools, the tools like I had as an athlete that were so imperative for that victory that I had. It's not just me. It's everybody behind the scenes, as you know, when you play basketball, there's probably 20 people behind the scenes that were a part of what y'all did, right? That's right. And you can't do it alone. People on my team can't do it alone. They need to be equipped. And I always have a huge goal to give them everything that they need to reach their potential. And that comes with a lot of fulfillment. I think this year it was a really big, big deal for me. I have, I have a team of 10 now. We have two full-time employees and 10 realtors on my team here in North Houston. And everybody came over to my house for the Christmas party. And when I started to see all the families that were a part of what we're doing, it all became really clear that, man, like I said, my eyes are open to it and God's doing great things. And that, these people really trust me as the leader. I've been chosen to be their leader and they trust me and there's not a better feeling in the world. And the X is on my back to do everything I can to lead them to victory. I find it interesting that in what I would consider an individual sport, you talk about leadership and doing other things for your team. You know, it's because I think how empty feeding yourself really is. Yeah. It's a lonely, it's a lonely world. It's lonely. It is lonely. It is. It is. Your biggest strength can be your biggest weakness and you're competitive as hell. Talk to me. How has that gotten you in trouble in the business world? 
running your company and how do you turn that down a little bit? Just like any other business, people have been doing it three years. People have been doing it 10 years. Some people have been doing it 25 years. Okay. I was raised to look at the person next to me and go a little faster than them. That's how I was raised. With that comes a lot of comparison. In my new world, comparison will eat you alive because I can never, I'm not competing against people that are in my profession. I'm just trying to create more relationships than them, right? And when I see other people that have had longer careers in real estate than I have that are at this point, and I'm, they're at this point and I'm at this point, it really, it really frustrates me. And, you know, I don't have the double push anymore, so I I can't, I don't really know what to do, right? (laughs) Yeah. Comparison games are work of the devil and it helped drive you as a skater, but it also can eat at your soul later in life. Yeah. And there's that middle ground. Where is that middle ground that you can still be competitive, but not so competitive where you talked earlier about you would do anything to win in terms of intimidating your opponent. And, and now I gather you might not do anything to win even though you don't like to lose, but how do you accept that? It is a, one of my mentors uh, tells me that it is um, a change in heart posture, how, how you view the world and like just there's a, a different perspective that you look at the world because you know that you have Christ, that it's a sign that you have Christ in you and that you, value that. And I think like just looking through those lenses rather than this arrogant, prideful guy who wants to go a little harder and a little faster than everybody else. Chad, that's a great way to end it. That That is powerful. I gather your company does more than sell homes. Um, you invest in real estate. Do you have a, can someone participate in investing through you? And, um, also I, I don't know if you're still doing keynote talks, but if yeah. you so, get in touch, yeah, we, we, we represent single family home buyers and sellers. Uh, we have a lot of investors that we work with here in the, in the local, uh, North Houston area, Woodlands spring area. Uh, it's a very vibrant market. Uh, real estate's been really good to everybody since time began, but, um, we, um, I also do, um, keynote speaking, uh, speeches. I just got back from Dallas a couple weeks ago, do that probably once a month. Uh, but really just like to connect with people and, and share my story and let God go to work and, and use it as he may. But I'll tell you guys, um, man, what you heard today is not Chad Hedrick. It's Chad Hedrick that's been transformed by the word. Mm-hmm. And uh, without him, you can accomplish everything on this earth. And at the end of the day, you will feel like you came up short without him. You rebounded quite well from that. <laughs> a lot of, lot of tears, a lot of pain. And you know what? A lot of gut checks. But I came out 
polished. And although I, I can't win gold medals out there, I wake up and I feel like, uh, man, I'm a better person now. And uh, I'm thankful for, for everything that I've experienced. Chad, thank you for sharing uh, your walk with the Lord, uh, your journey, where you are, how you're serving. It's really been an honor to get to know you uh, at Dan Jansen's Celebrity Golf Event, and I hope to see you there again in October. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, really appreciate you being on the Rebound Podcast. I wish you nothing but the best. Thank you so much. Leadership is a learned behavior. You're a leader, whether you're a parent, a coach, a business owner, or a friend. We all lead in some way, shape, or form. Thanks for listening. I welcome any and all feedback. You can reach me at dartycoaching.com.